Now, ladies and gentlemen, honored by their country, decorated by their queen, and loved here in America, here are the Beatles. What makes a good concert film? Since they all document live performance, their content is always the same. So what elevates one concert movie above others is not just the quality of the music, it's also the film's form. The genre came into life in the 1960s, and with so many tenets laid down in its first decade, precious few entries since then have managed to break open new ground. We can trace the first concert film to 1960 with Jazz on a Summer's Day. Directed by Aram Avakian and Bert Stern, it was initially intended to be a documentary about the 1958 Newport Jazz Festival in Rhode Island. The festival had been running since 1954, when socialite Elaine Lorillard and her husband Louis invited leading lights of the jazz world to partake in what was advertised as America's first jazz festival. It was a daring project. Newport was a favoured summer retreat for affluent conservatives on America's east coast, and that privileged old-fashioned community was not interested in African-American culture. Which is one of the reasons why the Laurelards decided to film the 1958 festival, which that year just happened to coincide with the America's Cup yacht races. Subtly, the film presents the cultural differences between old and white Newport and the younger generation embracing cultural diversity. That diversity came in the sounds of Louis Armstrong, Thelonious Monk, Jerry Mulligan and Chico Hamilton. While it does occasionally show the yachts out racing, Summer's Day focuses on the musicians and intercuts shots of them on stage with views of the audience. And with that, the template for the concert movie was established. Artist, audience, performer, receiver. And while new angles have been added over the decades, those two basic elements have dominated the concert film ever since. In 1967, D.A. Pennebaker delivered a film that seems to cover all the bases when it comes to not only the concert movie, but also a behind-the-scenes look at the life of a rock star. Don't Look Back followed an in-his-prime Bob Dylan to the UK, and en route, we see him navigating the full glare of stardom and all the head-splitting trappings that go with it. Interviews, writing songs, rehearsing, life backstage and performing are not enough. We also get to see Dylan dealing with the breakup from his girlfriend and fellow musician, Joan Baez. Here is Penny Baker explaining his intention. You know, he was a musician and we were doing a film about a musician. I thought he didn't use words the way you normally use them or learn them all the time. And I thought, you know, this guy is a poet and he's probably trying to figure out what a poet is. He was figuring out how to create himself in some way that he alone was interested in and so from the very beginning I was kind of interested to see that happen. Michael Wadley's Oscar-winning Woodstock covered the three-day festival that took place in August 1969. Undoubtedly it was boosted by some of the biggest acts of the era, The Who, Jefferson Airplane and Jimi Hendrix but sometimes you can have too much of a good thing. Over 120 hours of footage was filmed, and how all that footage was edited is the real reason why Woodstock qualifies as a landmark concert film. 
It was decided that using split screen would not only allow for more footage to be used, but the doubling and tripling of the images would also add to the energy coming from the stage. And nowhere is that more effective than during Santana's performance of Soul Sacrifice, when 20-year-old Mike Shreve was let loose with a two-and-a-half-minute drum solo. Gimme Shelter, featuring the Rolling Stones, was directed by the Maisels brothers and Charlotte Sferon. Albert and David Maisels belonged to the direct cinema movement in documentary, but with Gimme Shelter, they went further than just directly showing the Rolling Stones, as they went about promoting their album, recording new material, performing in Madison Square Garden, and then at the notorious and fatal Altamont Free Festival in December 1969. What makes this a genre landmark is not only its appalling content, but also its form. Repeatedly throughout, the footage cuts from the Rolling Stones performing on stage to showing us the band huddled around a moviola looking back at what happened. What happened was that the festival descended into chaos and eventually murder. Halfway through the Rolling Stones' performance of Under My Thumb, an 18-year-old man, Meredith Hunter, was stabbed to death by a member of the Hells Angels. For once, the music is utterly incidental, and the film ends with Mick Jagger watching footage of the murder and then leaving. As he does so, the image freezes as Jagger looks directly into the camera, and it is impossible to know what he was thinking about what just happened. Is my career over? Or get that camera out of my face? Or let's get back to the show. The 1960s set so many benchmarks for the genre, by the time the 70s rolled round, it seemed that there was nowhere new to go. But, as has so often been the case, it was Martin Scorsese who found a new way through. The Last Waltz covers the final performance of Canadian-American roots rock group The Band. Up until The Last Waltz, all concert films have been covered in two ways. Static cameras with long zoom lenses, or handheld 16mm images that were all too often fuzzy and either over or underexposed. But Scorsese insisted on upping the production values by shooting on 35mm. Then he recruited A-list cinematographers Vilmos Zygmunt, Michael Chapman and Laszlo Kovacs, and then supplemented their talents with Oscar-winning production designer Boris Levin, who oversaw the lighting and stage decoration. The film starts with the caption, This film should be played loud which is appropriate because The Last Waltz was the first concert film with a Dolby stereo mix. With the likes of Bob Dylan, Van Morrison, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Muddy Waters and Eric Clapton, what results is not just superb music and superb sound, but through the backstage interviews charting the history of the band, 
you get a sense of the passing of an era, an elegiac, well, waltz. The last waltz is considered by many as the greatest example of the genre, but my favourite is Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense, which covers talking heads in concert to promote their 1983 album Speaking in Tongues. It is an extremely pared-down and focused presentation. It begins with lead singer David Byrne taken to a bare stage with only a guitar and a large radio cassette player. After that number, he is joined by Tina Weymouth, and as each new number is performed, more members of the band and the backing band take to the stage, all while the roadies bring on and construct the set. The stage setting is entirely black, and Demi never affords us any backstage interviews. So, we don't get talking heads of talking heads. Only towards the end does the view cut away from the stage to the audience. But while that may sound like an exercise in restrictions, it delivers a wonderful experience. From the very beginning of the concert film, cameras had to be as lightweight as possible for crews to quickly react to the spontaneity of the live performance. In 2006, the Beastie Boys went a whole generation further with Awesome, I Fucking Shot That. There, they provided 50 digital cameras to audience members and asked them to do all the filming for their shows in Madison Square Garden. This is one like hardcore rule. If you can rock out, you can do whatever you want. Just keep shooting, you know? If it's just this and you're not looking, I don't care. But what that means is when the lights go down, that's when you press the magical red button, okay? In an era of increasingly polished, refined, but vacuum-packed performance films, Awesome redefined and revitalised the genre by capturing the subjective experience of going to a gig. Since then, the only new territory has been 3D, which U2 broke into in 2008 with the filming of their Vertigo tour. This leap is the visual equivalent of the sonic move into Dolby. Yet although 3D re-articulates the space before your eyes to deliver a more immersive experience, it somehow does not equal the intimate, communal feelings you get with Awesome. And for me, intimate and communal is what a concert is all about. Oh, 